90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm tired. Sued me too. I lied. I'm not doing well. <laughs> I'm virtual teaching again, uh, a course oh. that is in uh, UK time. Okay. Okay. So 6 a.m. for me is lunchtime there. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So it's I get to put in a half a day before a normal work day. Before a normal work day. And then a normal work day. <laughs> <laughs> and come home and do stuff. Okay, I can't complain too much then. I just stayed up late watching Dune. <laughs> <laughs> you and everybody else I've talked to recently. I know. I didn't realize it was actually on television. I thought I was going to have to try to find a babysitter, but um, nope, it wasn't. And I actually, I feel like my nerd card should get taken away. I haven't actually read it. I haven't either. I, I know you have. <laughs> but i feel like my nerd card should get taken away and i hope people that i know and love don't listen to this podcast <laughs> they do because they only listen if they know and love us <laughs> oh man i just assumed our audience was constantly turning over just people who accidentally clicked on ours instead of you know the better D labeled podcast above us or below us. <laughs> then don't panic. It's organic, which is next yeah. to us in the search yes, results. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> which I have listened to. <laughs> it's like, here are these people. Oh, this is good. <laughs> you have so, to wonder yeah, if they've, um, uh, they've done that with our, we need to do a crossover episode. Oh my don't gosh. Panic, it's organic minerals. <laughs> oh, this would be amazing. Okay, great. So we know what we're doing next week. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. Um, yeah, so we gotta get the show on the road because the the um <laughs> the rub of all of this being tired is I actually fell asleep while watching Dunes. <laughs> 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 I still have the second half of the movie to get through. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm excited and kind of related to Dune is what we're gonna talk about today. <laughs> Yeah, so I was uh, out of pocket last week because we were doing a test flight of an instrument that we helped uh, build, and I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about scientific ballooning and some of the pieces that go into it and maybe a little bit about what we did. I think you should probably start with a <laughs> with the definition of scientific ballooning. <laughs> Right. This definitely sounds like one of those things that you hear about and you're like, that's a job. Is that really a job? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, we send uh, radio sons or weather balloons, as they're more colloquially known, up from 32 locations in the U.S. twice a day mm-hmm. yep. to get upper air data. So that would be one instance of scientific ballooning. Huh. You're attaching <laughs> instruments to a balloon and sending it up through the atmosphere to attain new information. Yes. And if you see those balloons at 18 Z, you should probably stay weather aware. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And we need to know that information because we need to know what the atmospheric profile is of all those things. Cause you said the word radio sound, which isn't a balloon. It's the thing hanging off of the balloon. Right. And it's the thing that's gathering and sending back temp 
humidity, all kinds of fun stuff, right? Yeah, so generally you get uh, temperature, humidity, wearable dew point, um, atmospheric pressure, and the GPS location from which we back out the approximate winds. Right. So, and if you want to be really old and date yourself, you can <laughs> call them a raw wind sons. Ah, uh, yeah. From That's the back data. when the wind component was new. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the data I remember working with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Haven't been in meteorology for a while, but yeah. Um, yeah, so this is really cool. This is one of the most mind-blowing things that I remember when I was a high school student that was attending the Geosciences Academy camps. And we got to watch a weather balloon launch and then watch the data come in. And that was super cool. Yeah. So with uh, with a normal sonde, you see the data in real time as the balloon's ascending through the atmosphere. And, you know, normally these things go up and they're just allowed to pop naturally. And we don't really collect data on the way back down most of the time. The downfalling profile is not as accurate. And also, we have to get the data in in time for the next model assimilation run. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, okay, so when you say that, all right, a couple of things to unpack in that sentence. Allow them to pop naturally. So these big balloons go up. And if you live anywhere around Norman, you've seen these. And you're like, what is that balloon? It doesn't look like a child's balloon because it's huge. So these bad boys are going to do just what a parcel of air does, right? And they, like, expand quite a bit as they go up into the atmosphere. Yeah, a balloon that might be two and a half, three feet in diameter, or close to a meter for the rest of you listening, <laughs> uh, can become several meters before it pops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. Um, how long does it take before it pops? Oh, uh, it depends on the ascent rate and yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> say half an hour to 45 minutes. Okay. And what is that height? Uh, again, depends on how much you fill the balloon and yada, yada, yada. Um, round numbers, 80,000 feet. So pretty high up. <laughs> pretty high up. Uh, mm -hmm. Occasionally, you know, if you, especially if you're targeting this area, uh, you can get over 100,000 feet. Or if you don't really care, you can overfill the balloon and it will uh, pop sooner. Or you can use a cut down mechanism to cut the balloon free early. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. And then your payload falls back to Earth. And, you know, the sons that are normally used for just regular daily observations, they weigh like 80 grams or a little plastic or um, kind of fiberboard pack. Mm -hmm. And they just fall back to Earth. They, they're they very light. They tumble. They just fall back. Um, but with bigger payloads, it's not uncommon to see a parachute in line so that this thing doesn't come and lawn dart through somebody's house. Ah, okay. Um, so how big are the ones now compared with the old Rawlinsons? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> a... This is going to sound really foreign. Uh, the first weather balloon I remember, and I'm, I have not been seeing... Rawinsons for that long, mind you. Mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of people that can tell you about a lot older versions. But the first one I remember seeing, you actually soaked it in water. <laughs> uh, so it had a battery that needed to be wet to be activated. So you would rip this little tab off the bottom of a milk carton looking thing. 
And you would uh-huh. set it in a little pail of water and that would activate the battery. So you would do that that's while you were awesome. filling the balloon and all that. Oh, that's um, awesome. Mm-hmm. And it was the size of a paper milk carton, you know, maybe a half gallon or a little less. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah, now they're the size of two iPhones laid on top of each other. Yeah. <laughs> and you set it on a cradle that turns it on. And starts blinking the lights, and it instantly communicates with the computer, and you can set its name and parameters. And oh my gosh. it's amazing. <laughs> that's so crazy. <clears throat> they all have GPS is. built in now because that's cheap enough to just throw away. So cheap. That's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, okay. So that's another question, which you might want to get into later, which if you do, is that, you know, you used to like be able to find these things and send them back home. <laughs> Yeah. They'd have I don't like little... know if they even have a return tag on them now. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, actually, because there used to be little return tags, and, you know, you'd randomly get these in the mail from where people had found them, and they'd make their way back to the Weather Service office, and, you know, but now the... Yeah, they could get refurbished, because um, you yeah. don't have really any control where these come down. Right. But, you know, now I think they're pretty much 100% disposable. That's that's crazy. That's a lot of that's a lot of uh, weather data just <laughs> hanging out on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, but we did not fly just a Robinsond. Mm-hmm. We were flying a three-component vector electric field meter, or an EFM. Okay. All right. Is this designed to be used in storms or just to get? ambient electric field data so this is a high field meter so this is designed to be used in storm situations so how does a balloon gonna work in a storm it's bumpy (laughs) and windy (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah that would have been the perfect quote there sorry i missed that opportunity it's windy sure did (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, so this is an instrument that the original design for it came about, I think it was in the 70s. I mean, you can pretty much say that about most modern scientific <laughs> yeah, instruments. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but there is a paper that I remember reading, and you know, every 20 years or so it needs revamped. New technology is out. Old technology is hard to get. <laughs> and it was time for a revamp cycle, and we were contracted to do this work. That's cool. Yeah. So it's a crazy instrument. The original ones were propeller driven. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, because you need to rotate these two spheres okay. to let you measure charge. Mm-hmm. And now it's driven by an electric motor. Okay. Because those are small enough now that a balloon can take them up. <laughs> right. Well, and the previous version that I was replacing was driven by an electric motor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it just, especially on that one, the processors were getting hard to find. It, ah. You know, we can get much better analog to digital converters for cheaper now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. So anyway, we, uh, I don't want to get too deep into how this instrument works just because it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said I have, I have half a movie left to watch, so no. <laughs> yeah, from... From go to test flight. Now, remember COVID was in there too. Yeah. 
Um, but it was about two years. <sighs> mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so lots to I don't do. know how many person days of effort in that two years. I'm going to say several months worth, though. Wow. Okay. And but- yeah, we we finally were able to get together because of the regulations with with COVID uh, and everything else, and technology and people schedules. We were able to get together and get this thing flown for a that's, maiden test flight. That's awesome. And she worked, right? Yeah, uh, like anything, we got a few bugs to iron out here and there, but overall, everything worked great. Uh, the instrument, if you can, if you can visualize, and I'll <laughs> I'll put a link to the launch in the show notes. Uh, typical weather balloon, maybe two and a half, three feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. This weather balloon, much larger. Yeah, uh, because it's a heavier instrument. The instrument weighs uh, right at four pounds. Oh, okay. So the whole instrument trained together has to be 12 or less, and each individual instrument has to be less than six. Okay. Uh, without getting special permits and things. Mm-hmm. And it has two rhombus-shaped paddles on the end that, connect, that are connected by a big fiberglass stick. And as it ascends, the shape of those paddles makes the instrument rotate on a swivel. Okay. So that part's still wind-driven. Yeah. Uh, and then there are two metal spheres in the center of the stick that are spun by a motor. And measuring electrical charge flowing between them as they spin, we're able to determine the electric field. Mm-hmm. And then by measuring the orientation of the spheres and the orientation of the instrument, we're able to determine the field direction. And this is something for somebody like uh, Dr. Eric Bruning that's been on the show a couple times to tell us more about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because he's the he's the lightning expert and the, the EFM data processing expert. Uh, but we designed all the new hardware. So there are electronic circuit boards inside the spheres that are counting oh. charge and determining orientation. Uh, you can't have long wires in high electric fields. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work out so well. So they send the data via fiber optic link and a rotating coupling to one of the paddles that has a circuit board in it that is receiving the GPS position, time tagging these observations, which we're measuring the the spheres 20 times a second. Uh, So it's time tagging all of those, combining it with the GPS data, storing that on an SD card, and transmitting it to the ground. All right. The other end, the other rhombus, has the motor and the control circuitry that drives that. Okay. Uh, so we have to keep the sphere spinning at a constant rate, two revolutions a second, regardless of the battery state or temperature. So we're constantly monitoring those and adjusting the power going to the motor. So there's a lot of moving pieces. And that's just what flies. That's not even talking about the ground station <laughs> or the cut down that lets us terminate the flight early based on time, pressure, remote command, or the satellite modem that lets us find it after it's fallen to Earth and accomplishes some of the tracking utilities. There's a lot of pieces to this. Yeah, that's impressive. Um, because I was, so this guy has like you know an SD card and all that and all this lots of pieces. This is something you're going to want to go get. This is like an experimental thing. This isn't something you're going to shoot up you know every day and let it go and then be done with it. 
Yeah, and it's, it's relatively expensive uh, uh -huh. because there are so many moving pieces and a lot of labor into assembling each unit. Right. So we do have a satellite tracker that uh, sends the position really via the internet. So it it talks to a satellite, sends a satellite message that goes through a bunch of APIs and things. And at the end of the day, you get an email every couple minutes that says, here's where I am. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. Mm -hmm. And because you don't want to have to chase it all over the Midwest, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, we can either set, they can set an altitude and say, after this altitude, I don't care. We're going to be out of the top of the storm cut the balloon loose and come back down to earth, or they can issue a remote command again through satellite. So it's secure. Nobody out there with a, like in the <laughs> old days, nobody can listen with scanners and get some DTMF tone sequence and start messing <laughs> right. with them. Um, and it will actually perform the cut down by melting, uh, using a hot wire cutter, melting through the line that attaches the balloon to the instrument train. That's fun. Yeah. I like it. I like that that's a manual action still. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so they can look at the data and say, okay, we're out of the top of the storm. Go ahead and start coming back to Earth because we need to go get this thing. So I would imagine coming back down through a storm could get pretty violent for it, though. <laughs> yes? No? Oh, yeah. Um, uh -huh. We need to have uh, one of their one of their staff scientists on to tell us about all of the various failure modes they've recovered instruments in. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, struck by lightning and melted, broken in half by turbulence, oh. uh, landing in every type of body of water imaginable. Oh yeah. Now that one I could see um, struck by lightning and melted. I imagine that's also happened quite a bit. <laughs> oh, they have a fantastic, uh, radio sound that they had launched and recovered that has a hole in it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it was quite the operation. Uh, we let it terminate naturally, which was 78,000 feet somewhere in there. Okay. And, of course, we're all taking bets on where it's going to land. Obviously. <laughs> and the big debate was, is it going to land north or south of the Red River? <laughs> okay. And as it and approached you're... the ground, I started taking bets on in the river. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Terrible. We did a low pass over a lake. I'm sure the boaters were wondering what the heck. And you guys are like, oh, God, just a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, we made it just over a thousand feet from the lakeshore. Oh, my goodness. It was very close. <laughs> That's impressive. Uh, impressive. And, you know, it's not when we launch it, you'll see in the video, it's it looks like about 40 or 50 feet long. By the time you get the balloon and the line and the instrument or the cut down and the instrument. All that. That's true. But you can't have the instrument that close to this big plastic balloon when you want to measure electric charge. Right. Everybody knows that <laughs> balloons accumulate charge, right? Exactly. <laughs> yep. So there is another wonderfully mechanical device that about a minute after launch triggers, and it unspools another 150 feet of line. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this thing flying in the air is a 200 foot long string of instruments. Man, that's a lot. Yeah. But I guess you don't have to worry about, you know, hitting a plane in the middle of a storm or anything. So True. It still disturbs me that anything under that 12 pound limit, you don't even have to issue notums to airmen. They just figure they're just going to take it down, so it's no big deal. Well, I mean, a, a large jet would do that. I don't want to hit this in my plane. Yeah, no kidding. Are you larger than a fat goose? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> now, the the good thing is, these ascend very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Order 15 feet a second. Um, so, an airplane flying at a constant altitude has a very, very, very small chance of encountering one. Right, yeah. And the balloons are big. And as a pilot, it's drilled into you. Your number one responsibility is to see and avoid any obstacles. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in my plane, you could see it and go, what is that? And steer. <laughs> uh, in a jet aircraft, you know, a very large passenger aircraft, I don't know if you would be able to see it in time, but I don't know if it would matter. Yeah, that's true. Just go splat. You probably would. At the flight levels, the balloon's going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Surely. Uh, so, yeah, we got down to a little under minus 70C, I think. It was quite cold mm-hmm. in the upper levels. That's impressive. It was super windy when you got here, too. Um, <laughs> and you, <laughs> It was funny because I texted you to say, hey, did you, you know, get to fly today? And you're like, no, it would have been in the Gulf of Mexico. And that was not an exaggeration. <laughs> No, we had uh, 50 mile an hour surface winds the first day yeah. we were supposed to launch. <laughs> it was so windy. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is a bad day. <laughs> yeah, I was glad I wasn't trying to fly in there in my plane myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> Man. Mm-hmm. You would have gotten thrown all around like a radio sound in a tornado. <laughs> it it would have been very unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. I kept watching the Norman Airport. uh Mitar and looking at what the crosswind component was on the runways. I was like, Ooh, <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> I imagine anything in the double digits is bad. And <laughs> no, I mean, gusting into the twenties or thirties, it really isn't that big of a deal, but wow. Really? I mean, I'm not going to say it's smooth, but gusting much more than it. that. <laughs> yeah, it was gusting in the upper 50s. Yeah, that was unbelievable. That that wind was. Uh-huh. So that was funny, but I'm glad you got to fly. And that's super cool, too. Yeah, yeah. so it's just this whole world. And, you know, there's a, a group of hobby people, high-altitude balloonists. Of course um, there is. <laughs> habs that, you know, they, they send little experiments up and GoPros and that sort of thing. That's cool. Uh, we didn't we didn't have anything like that on this though. The next flight, I hope they do put a GoPro on because I actually oh. want to see something mechanical that's happening in flight. Uh huh. Um, I also want to see how we fall before yes. shoot opening. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Um, man, I would imagine the GoPro would be the first thing I'd strap to that bad boy. But <laughs> so this is this is really cool that we've talked about balloons and kites as conveyors of scientific instrumentation still not in the 1800s (laughs) and that's really neat 
Yeah. And, you know, I've had a, a soft spot for weather balloons anyway. Um, I, I just think they're a cool instrument. I did a lot of uh, stuff with the weather balloon data, radioson data, uh, just because when I was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Just because I thought it was such cool data that you're sending an instrument. It's like sinking an instrument, instrument, you know, a submarine through the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, except you're you're buoyant and you're rising to the top of this weird air ocean, right? And you exactly. see massive property changes. Uh huh. So it was yeah. very cool. Uh, I got to got to design and build something that went to seventy eight thousand feet, which was neat. Yeah, that's awesome. And the the folks on our team here were all really excited when I was able to show them what they had done had had done this. Uh-huh. Uh the simple, you know, there are a few mistakes that are pretty, pretty easy to correct. Um, we also learned like you got to make everything easy to do in the moment of deployment. Right. But the, uh, the one thing that I will tell on myself for is hmm. we're looking at the data after it comes back and somebody that somebody being me decided to encode temperature as an unsigned integer. Uh oh. <laughs> so temperature goes down, 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 and it hits zero and just stays there. <laughs> and then as the balloon's falling in, and then it comes back. Oops. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, don't know how I didn't catch that one, but temperature was sent as an unsigned number, so that didn't work out so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, how far would that even work out to? Not very far up, really. Well, I mean, two degrees Celsius per 1,000 feet, roughly. So, yeah. uh, you know, if it's... I guess it was pretty warm. So. If it's 20 at the surface, that yeah. gives you 10,000 feet. There you go. <laughs> that's funny. And that's I would say that's roughly about where it cut out. Uh, yeah, I would say probably between 10 and 13,000. That's an easy fix, though, I'm imagining. Oh, oh yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> that fix will take me five minutes to test or five minutes to do, 15 minutes to test. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those that I didn't find because I tested all the subsystems individually. And the ones that we were afraid of not working when they were cold, we tested in our temperature chamber. But I can't test the whole thing together yeah. in our temperature chamber because the instrument's, you know, like Too four big. feet long. Yeah. <laughs> My temperature chamber is 12 by 12 by 12. Uh, yeah. So, oops. <laughs> Unit test work, integration test fails. <laughs> oh, that's super cool. Um, we definitely need to have people on here that do some ballooning stuff. It's interesting. Yeah, and, you know, I've got the perfect person in mind uh, from doing this. He's designed a lot of cool instruments that are even crazier than this and has had all kinds of experiences recovering them, including one that has a big light source in it being called in as a UFO. Ah, excellent. (laughs) So we'll, we'll have to have those stories another time. That's excellent. Yes. But we can chew on that and see how it goes down. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which means it's times for everybody's uh, favorite segment of the show. And that would be Fun Paper Friday. Yeah. Was, I did was hit that two, two pencils? Uh, <laughs> it, it, worse, it was two miniature screwdrivers. 
that's even better. What are you talking about? So the cowbells are actually packed in my uh, travel case, which is not oh, here. Okay. Well, so I took them on travel. Yay, anyway. <laughs> yay, anyway. Uh, and this is a paper from none other than <gasps> listener slash co-host Daryl. <laughs> I was going to say, this doesn't sound like a paper you would have picked out. This sounds like a paper I would have picked out. Or Daryl, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it was a biology paper, so, you know. Yes, correct. I guess it's okay, I guess. <laughs> this is great, Daryl. Uh, shark spiral intestines may operate as Tesla valves by Lee et al. <laughs> so I've got to ask, are you, were you before reading this familiar with the Tesla valve? No, no, I was not at all. <laughs> okay. I'm <laughs> um, assuming you were, and then I thought, eh, I'll let John tell me about it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm staring at, you know, the four or five books I've got on Tesla on my Great. bookshelf right now. Okay. That's what I assumed was going to happen. So go for it. <laughs> yeah. So a Tesla valve is a structure with no moving parts, which lets a fluid flow one way and heavily restricts its flow in the other. Okay. So it's kind of like so, a one-way valve, like a check valve, but it mm -hmm. doesn't have any moving parts. Right. There's no flappers, essentially. No flappers, so. no moving ball. It's this kind of weird, loopy fluid path. It looks like if you had a heart and you sheared a heart, like, vertically, and then glued that to another sheared vertical heart, glued that oh, to another Oh, you mean like sheared. the cartoon heart shape. I was thinking real heart for a second, but okay. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> Cartoon heart shape. <laughs> All right. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what it looks like to me. It's like a little something I would doodle on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, and so if the fluid is flowing in one direction, it just flows down the central path and everything is happy. Mm -hmm. If you try to but flow fluid in the other direction, it enters a leg of that heart. Mm -hmm. And it gets spat back out going the wrong way in the main flow path. Mm-hmm. Right. So it gets redirected. So Yeah, it kind go. of creates a back pressure and lets nothing else come in. Mm-hmm. Now it's not a perfect check valve. Right. But for right. no moving parts, it's pretty good. So this is crazy because these sharks' intestines look like this. <laughs> yeah, with a few different forms. Like there, you know, there are other geometries that do this other than Tesla valves, but um, yeah, there are several evolved geometries that do exactly this function. This was so weird. So essentially the inside of their intestines, it could be like this columnar spiral. It could be like a cupped spiral with the cups facing either direction, anterior or posterior. And then this weird scroll shape, which is exactly what it sounds like. Just having a scroll rolled up. That is so strange and like i mean the phenotype or whatever they're like why would this happen why would you have intestine shape like this and i think it was all about i gathered it was all about um because it wasn't like diet specific or anything like that i gathered it was just all about getting the most out of your food yeah it's all about slowing the food or the it's not really bile um, no. Digestive tract matter. Yes. <laughs> um, 
It's all about <laughs> slowing that down so you can absorb as many nutrients from it as you can. Uh-huh. And that one-way valve means that when when your stomach and the upper intestines, when they, through that peristaltic action, squeeze more down, it doesn't come back up and they it have to squeeze it down again. Up. It's an energy-conserving measure. Mm-hmm. Man, I need that. One too many pieces of pizza, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I know. Um, the, yeah, the pictures in there are really interesting. Um, and I know that you noticed this. Well, I imagine you noticed this. Oh, that's really cool that they said, Hey, here's all the data. So people can continue to work with this. Here's some ideas of how you can continue to work with this. Yeah. And here's a URL where the data are available. Here's how you cite us. Thanks. I thought that was amazing. <laughs> I concur. Mm-hmm. That I was super cool. Also, as I always do with these kind of papers, um, the first thing I read is the method section. I know. <laughs> and I always skip it because I know you'll cover it. <laughs> so I thought, how does one measure how effectively things flow through intestine? Um, you, you flow it through the intestine? <laughs> yeah, it's super unsophisticated, so... <laughs> You <laughs> you take a carboy that's marked off in liter increments, yep, and it's got a valve on the bottom, just like when you're transferring beer, <laughs> and you hook the intest- intestine up and open it and start a stopwatch and see how long a liter takes to flow through, and you repeat that trial several times. They did it with water, and they also did it with some, I believe it was a glycol mix, to simulate different viscosities, but the results were basically the same. Yeah, there you go. So the upper intestines, they flew, uh, flew. The upper intestines had a high flow rate. Yeah. The lower sense. intestine, though, where you had these Tesla valves, uh, it was, it slowed things down in the primary direction. And then, so the anterior to posterior, but in the posterior to anterior direction, it was like dead stop almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was way, way, way less. There's a graph in here that shows the flow rate. Let's see. It is figure four. Mm -hmm. So in cubic centimeters per second, uh, the most effective one looks like it, maybe the flow rate was 25% of what it was anterior to posterior. Right. So that's pretty... Pretty good. Pretty good keeping it back down. <laughs> Interestingly, the scroll was the least effective, it looked like. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that makes sense. Yeah. I would, think, I would think these cups or that columnar one actually is the one that I would have guessed from the beginning just looking at the way it looks. Yeah, but the spiral intestine uh, looks remarkably like a Tesla valve and worked very, very well. Yeah. That's super cool. Man, what do we learn about all of this? Intestines are super weird. Wombats poop cubes and shark intestines are Tesla valves. And it's all (laughs) the same physics, just a different time scale. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) No, Daryl, this was a a great paper. I enjoyed reading it and I definitely learned something uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. 
today. Indeed. Well, uh, we are going to uh, start collecting your results on the results of flow rates through different <laughs> intestinal shapes. <laughs> Shannon, how can folks send in their test results from uh, their shark spiral intestine Tesla valves? <laughs> We'd appreciate the CT scans too. Those are pretty cool. Uh, send us those show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Please tweet these to John at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Together we are at Don't Panic Geo. Um, you can also find us sometimes hanging out on the Slack channel, the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us in intestine-related fun papers. You can support us on Patreon too, patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or 